Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on author, entrepreneur, and teacher, Seth Godin. I recently watched an interview with Seth, wherein he was describing a discussion he had with someone asking him for career advice, and he remarked, I was not always Seth Godin. For some of us, that's hard to believe. While his thinking and teachings have, of course, grown and expanded over the years, it seems as though there's always been a Seth Godin around, and that he's been Seth Godin that whole time. I grew up as part of the first generation that had computers in the home, that came into the business world as technology and networks were coming to the fore, and who first did business on the internet. As an early denizen of Silicon Alley in New York City, I remember Seth's early company Yo-Yo Dine, which he sold to Yahoo in 1998, and his writings around permission marketing and communities all very early, influential internet milestones. Seth joined us to talk about some of the concepts and themes in his recent book, The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams. It's a book that identifies and offers ways out of the current dead end, or cul-de-sac, that is the modern workplace. It names the problems and behaviors that are driving so much angst up and down our org charts. If you've ever felt trapped in a less than ideal work environment, could not quite say what it was that was wrong, the book might provide you a sense of recognition and even relief. It will also likely tell you how you contributed to the situation and give you some things to consider so the past is not prologue. There's much more to the book and Seth's thinking than we were able to cover in our brief visit, but I hope our talk spurs you to dig deeper. And now, Seth Godin. Am I in the right place at the right time? You absolutely are. I wouldn't Yay. have expected otherwise. <laughs> Good to see you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for making time. I want to dive into the Song of Significance. There's so much to unpack in that sort of small pocket-sized book. One of the things I wanted to start with was something that kept coming up for me throughout the book, which was, and I'm not going to ask you to name this per se, unless you're comfortable doing so, but I was trying to get a feel for, lack of a better way to say it, your politics. When you talk about the differences between industrial capitalism and market capitalism and the goals of each and how they work and all the trickle-down repercussions of them, I wonder if you're a revolutionary or a reformer. (laughs) (laughs) Or some third way. Well, the word politics is a very tricky word because what it really means is having an argument you're not willing to engage in, in the sense that you have to win, and it's about dividing one side with another. And the stakes in politics are established by someone other than you. It gets in the way of society, civility, governance, because those are things that don't have the same game theory associated with them. So if the approach is my side right or wrong, or the approach is I have to do what the leader said, because that's the only way to make the other side go down, we're having a political conversation. And I avoid those because I find them 
banal, and toxic. What I am trying to articulate here, going back to first principle, is it's very clear to me that a structured but free market solves many problems better than anything humans have ever discovered. We have invented 8 billion jobs. We have fed an enormous number of people. We have solved problems people didn't even know they had because a market of choice enabled that to occur. But built into that is, all the way back to Adam Smith, et cetera, you can't have a free market without a foundation. You can't have a free market without rules, without structures, without a civic mindset, a civil society to live inside of. And the second thing is monopolies and side effects are the two things that wreck a free market. I wish we were aware enough to have on any side of any political argument, this just to be assumed to be the case, because it's really hard to argue against. So in that sense, I'm a reformer in that I think the first principles are correct. And I think we overlook side effects. We justify what we're doing by saying, I'm just doing my job. And lots of us are influenced by monopolies, monopolies that hurt us in ways we have trouble imagining. Yeah, you used a word there, structured market. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I don't want to blow past that word because for me, it implies regulation, management theory, leadership style. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot there, but that also dovetails into something else you say in the book, which is that the industrial capitalist or industrial capitalism, I loved the line, doesn't know where to stop. Mm-hmm. If if a market is predicated on a system of incentives or if capitalism is a system of incentives, the industrial incentive seems to be very zero sum. And if if you have anything, I have less as opposed yeah. to a, a a notion of abundance. Yeah. Now, these are great questions. So let's talk about music because I know that that's something that's important to you and probably people are listening to this. If we didn't have the player piano lawsuits from 100 more years ago, if we didn't have copyright law, if we didn't have mechanical licenses, if we didn't have ASCAP and BMI, if we didn't have all of that regime, there would be no popular music. That the, quote, free market in popular music only existed during its glory days because there were boundaries, right? That when you say payola is against the law because you're using bribery to get your share of the public spectrum, well, that's how we ended up with a whole bunch of rock groups that couldn't afford payola, right? But then if we take industrial capitalism a little further, left to its own devices, Clear Channel would have made it so there were only two radio stations in the country, and that would have led to an extinction of variety, and it would have led to less music consumption. We can see in that very simple example, in which very few people were actually physically harmed by the side effects, that monopoly and side effects and structure enabled what we thought of as this vibrant free market in music in the 60s. And when the mafia shows up, that makes it worse, not better. It's interesting in thinking about the music business and the work environment of the music business in the context of your book, because I think a lot of young people go into any of the creative industries because they love that thing, film, music, Mm -hmm. whatever it happens to be, maybe even working in an art gallery. And they want to be surrounded by that in their work life. And I've seen over and over again, 
young people disillusioned, heartbreaking, abused. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's basically you're going to take a discount for the right to work in this field. And the sum total of that has been, at least in my observation, that's not how you attract the best and brightest. You, then you attract the people who are only there because they want the free concert tickets or the record before it hits the street. You don't, you don't necessarily get the people who are going to die on behalf of the project. So a lot in your book, it felt so aspirational to me. And I know that you're not a prescriptive writer. You don't lay out the roadmap. You present the conditions or the you, you pose the questions. But I'm really curious if you think that or if you see realities where any organization in any field has successfully made the transition, has had a light bulb moment and said, we're functioning under the wrong paradigm and it's not getting us where we need to be. Let's do it differently. Oh, I see those all the time. If I didn't, I don't know how I could do this work. I just want to put in an aside about the heartbreaking work of showing up in your industry, thinking that being in your industry is being in your craft. Liz Gilbert has written so beautifully about vocation versus avocation versus hobby. I had a friend who became a well-known screenwriter, but started his career by selling junior mints at a Broadway theater. That's not a good way to become a screenwriter or a, a playwright. It's just being near the people who do the work is a way to hide. It is not a way to expose yourself to the work. And so that wow. mythology, that form of resistance, as Pressfield would call it, feeds into the fact that these industries don't want to pay very much. But I think it's worth, as the person who's signing up for those jobs, it makes way more sense to me to go get the most productive job you can and use the money and freedom that buys you to do your hobby, to love your hobby, to get great at your hobby. And then when you are great at your hobby, the world will show up and say, we noticed this hobby of yours, and then you can skip the line. But paying your dues by making French fries in a fancy restaurant for 12 months, thinking that that's the way you become a chef, I'm not sure that that is actually the direct route. So that was an aside that I had to get off my chest before. You were talking about organizations that figured out significance. So let's talk about one of the biggest ones, which is how Microsoft altered its path after the disaster of Steve Ballmer versus what Google fell into. Ballmer almost ruined the company. When the new regime took over, they took a deep breath and they looked around and they said, we're going to have to play by different rules. So they measured and rewarded programmers in a different way. They spent their R&D money in a different way. They decided whether or not you like where Bing and AI are going to make bets on people to move things forward, where Google took its head start and said, how do we squeeze every dollar out of this? And as you and I are speaking, they're in the middle of an antitrust suit. That's a giant company. If we think about a smaller organization, a restaurant with five or six or 10 people in it, they can figure out that they want to be cooks and just churn it out and make everything they made yesterday over and over again. Or they can decide they're going to use the new communications dynamic to be able to invite customers to be part of what they are building. And instead of finding diners for their food, they find food for their diner. And it lights up everybody in that place because it's a different thing. It's not how do we get bigger? It's how do we double down on why we're here in the first place? So it's everything between those two. My friend Ben Zander 
has done it in classical music. And in most industries, I can point to somebody who figured it out. Ray Anderson took one of the most polluting industries in the world, carpeting, and his little carpet company and transformed it into the first zero impact floor covering company. And while he was doing it, changed the lives of the people in the company and made a lot of money. Yeah, I love that example in the book. I, I, and I loved the humility of basically he set the North Star and said, I hope you know how to figure this out because I don't know how to do it. Good luck. Keep me posted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there were several moments for me in reading the book where I had a couple of ego gratifying moments because there are a few places I've arrived at over my career and philosophies that I've come to hold that I felt <laughs> in a very self-satisfying way that that were that were seconded that. by. Yeah, it was great. I felt very good. Felt like I'd actually uh, achieved something as a working human. One of the things you get into that I, I was very excited to talk to you about is this notion of passion at work and how it's tied up in values and principles. And I, I've had this sort of rant for a while that there are a few words I like to see squeezed out. Passion was one that has bothered me for a long time and you articulated it very well. I won't paraphrase what you said. You know what you said. My take on passion was when someone's passionate and I think about what that word means, they're perhaps overly excitable. They're not stable necessarily. They're susceptible to manipulation. Now, there's lots of very positive connotations of the word, of course. But in mm -hmm. the workplace concept, I've always said, bring me an excited professional, somebody who wants to do great work. And if, it, if they view what they're doing as their job to pay for their lifestyle interests or to support their family, why they're there is almost less important to me than how they show up. It's not necessarily my business why they're there. People's lives are complicated. Some people are climbing the ladder. Some people just want to survive. They're paying off student loans. You know, a myriad reasons why people work. So passion is one closely related to that is the idea of we're a family. And mm -hmm. again, so subject to manipulation and to interpretation, right? Like not everybody has a good family <laughs> or, or I'm not sure you want to have the kind of relationship with other people that you have with your family. But anyway, but where I'm getting is that you talked about values and values was another one that bothers me. I like principles a little bit better because I find values, they don't help you make decisions I have found. I found that principles, if I'm at a crossroads, I can look at the principles and they're a bit more guiding, whereas the values are more aspirational and a little bit more open to interpretation. I'm not looking to pick a fight. I just, I, I'm curious as to if any of these that are, lands These for are you. really deep, important ideas. So let me try to take them one by one. If I forget one, please remind me. What I write about with passion is this. The story we tell ourselves is fuel for how we're going to show up. Resistance has caused many creative people to say, I need to do work that I'm passionate about. And as a result, they can phone it in when it's something that feels like work or that exposes mm -hmm. them to fear. It leads to a sense of entitlement. I don't think it's useful fuel. On the other hand, I think the narrative of, I can choose to be passionate about work that I am going to do is an endless source of fuel. I don't view those sorts of people as uppity or unpredictable. I view those people who have decided 
to bring something to work. So I have met passionate baristas. I have met passionate people selling at the farmer's market. I have met passionate lawyers. But I've also met people whose narrative is, I just got to phone it in because I hate this. They're both doing the same job. But one has a better source of fuel than the other one. I don't think anyone was born to be an oil painter or born to be a litigator. I think over time, we tell ourselves a story that helps us feel like we've found our footing. The second idea you talked about was the family thing. And you make some excellent points. This, I think, comes to make promises and keep them. And the, the, the writer's strike just ended uh, a couple of weeks before the writer's strike. Drew, Drew Barrymore announced she was bringing her show back without her writing team. And she had this whole long story about family and blah, blah, blah. But that wasn't really what it was. She just wanted to make more money. And after the strike ended, her three top writers chose to not return to the show. Their choice. They quit. Now, you could say, well, that's because the family values were torn asunder. I think it's more accurate to say promises were made but not kept. And we need to work with people who will keep their promises. Whether those promises are based on values or principles, I think the key is if someone says it's just business, if they say, leave the gun, take the cannoli, if the whole mindset is my job is to maximize shareholder value, now you know what their values are. You know what their principles are. You understand that at no time will they do anything other than what helps them do that. Yeah. That's very cut and dried. And for the 60s, 70s, and 80s in this country, it was a, a useful map. But I think the side effects and trauma it created have now shown up enough that we understand that's not the guiding principle of a useful business. But we better be able to say what it is. What are our promises? And let's go keep them. That's interesting, Seth, because the, the two things I'm hearing when you say that, one is let's just use the language we mean. If we, if we are saying family values, but we mean the commitments we make to each other, let's use that language. It's more yes. direct. It's more clear. I agree. Yes. Yeah. But the other, um, no, I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Well, no, the, the thing is when you're talking to a smart person like I am, you, you want to just nest everything. We're not having a, how did that baseball game go conversation? There's, we're interchanging essays. It's easy to lose your train of thought. Don't worry. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Oh, the other point is that when somebody's telling you what they are, you should listen to them. When they're telling you what their values are, the benefit of direct communication allows you to do that a bit more easily. But the benefit of experience in life in the workplace allows you to recognize the things that you were saying. If somebody's telling you, and oftentimes they're telling you by what they're focusing you on to measure, or they're just saying it in their words. And we're going to prepare this type of style of communication for the next board update, or we're going to have an all hands. And these are the things we're going to talk about. You're being given very explicit signal that yes. you could just stop filtering. <laughs> right. Yes. Let's get real or let's not play. Why are we here? You know, a friend used to work at Bloomberg and Mike Bloomberg personally makes over a billion dollars every few months for that company. There's nobody at Bloomberg who thinks that the work at Bloomberg is their passion. There are people at Bloomberg who think that beating the numbers is their passion. That's made very clear from the first day you get there. This is a place for people who want to beat their numbers. It is not a place for people who want to find that other sort of meaning. 
And if you're the kind of person who wants to beat your numbers, that's great because you could have been in the Olympics when you're 18, but now you're 30 and you've got bad knees. Go beat these numbers. But at least they're clear with each other about that. That's fascinating because that speaks to skill transfer as well. It actually opens up career path when you think about that's right. what is it that's important to me. I'm actually interested in having an objective measurement that I can blow away. There's lots of places like that. Yeah. That's really interesting. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. Bonus Tracks is the official blog of Spotlight On, online at spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog. There you'll find additional artist interviews, music commentary, and more. Have a look. And now, back to Spotlight On. Something that surprised me in the book was that it was, it was a bit of an aside, but you mentioned Joe Hudson. I was with a company that was one of his early clients and went through his program. I enjoyed it very much. It was very difficult. It was personally challenging. I actually found it incredibly, I mean, I guess the biggest endorsement I would make is that I found the applications in, in all aspects of my life, not just the workplace. His modality is, it's more about connection and communication than, than anything else. I also appreciated a callback to that when I read your just a couple of paragraphs about the trickster. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that first, not in that name, but when I read the section about Joe, I was thinking, where did our work with him not reach its full manifestation? And it was because it's not his job or within his scope to factor for the trickster. And the trickster manifests in lots of different ways, right? especially in a in an entrepreneurial environment because the trickster is is who we laud oftentimes the gadfly the rebel this sort of myth of the founder i wonder where is there a constructive role for the trickster if at all okay so for our viewers at home lewis hyde wrote a book about the trickster it's a little dense every book he's written is a seminal masterwork his book about the gift is a must read but the book about the trickster goes all the way back to indigenous people's legends about the coyote mm-hmm. and forward and back and forward and back. The argument could be made that it is technology that is the trickster of the day, that we don't work in a stable world anymore because it was stable for 10,000 years. You found an animal, you ate it, you planted a seed, you grew it over and over and over again. But when we come together in community, Somebody often shows up not to keep the status quo going, but to throw a monkey wrench into it and to bring a sort of change. Sometimes that person is selfish and evil and wants to run for elected office. And we need to say to that person, not on my dime, we would have no time for you. But sometimes that person shows up and points out the emperor is not wearing any clothes. Sometimes that person shows up and says, but what if we did it this way, in a way that completely transforms what's going on? Can it be generative? I think it's often generative. A personal example, American Express used to have a series of interview shows that they did with a host like me and an entrepreneur like Richard Branson, and they would film it live on film in front of a bunch of credit card holders, 400 people at a conference, and then they would buy cable airtime and broadcast this interview as a promotion for American Express. I did like eight of them for them. And the first time I showed up, they had flew a hundred people in with the, the whole crew. They had to buy the space. They paid the talent. 
It was a very expensive thing. They had someone holding up cue cards for me to read. I'm like, I don't read cue cards. That's not good. That's not why I'm here. <laughs> so each time we did it, I started to encourage them to take people out of the equation to figure out how to make it, to show up with alacrity, to make it more flexible, quicker, and reach more people. Why do we need to buy cable TV at time? Just put it on YouTube. You'll reach 10 times as many people. And so I was the trickster because I wasn't a lifer at American Express. I wasn't the person at the production company who was getting paid by every hour spent on the job. One person showing up to just ask some questions with no power is at some level a trickster. They're shining light to what could be. Now, if I had been there to try to hurt American Express at MasterCard's benefit, they should have asked me to leave the building. What often happens as a lifetime positive trickster is sometimes you do get asked to leave the building because people say, we have a signature right now. We're really comfortable. These are fine ideas but you're just messing us up. You should go over there. And it's like, thanks for letting me know. Those kinds of tricksters, the ones who are happy to leave when they're not helpful, I think we need more of those in our organizations. That dovetails, perhaps in a roundabout way, but into the notion of turnover and also into mm -hmm. the notion of the inappropriate proxies. Earlier in my career, when I was first leading organizations, I used to think that low turnover was something to aspire to. And most people do. Yeah, I can recall a couple of years running where I had very, very low turnover in my organization. And I remember towards the end of that time feeling very stale. Wasn't getting challenged, the points of view weren't, you know, all the things you could imagine when you have a crew of people who just become not even complacent, just comfortable. Yeah. Not enough new perspective. But later on, as I grew out of that proxy, as, so the, the inappropriate proxy was that it, it was a measure of a good workplace, a good environment, safety, excitement, enthusiasm, et cetera, et cetera. As I observed other leaders, something that I never related to was a fear of turnover because it was a personal rejection or mm -hmm. your idea is bad. And I've witnessed environments where someone wants to leave. And instead of the conversation being, is, are you leaving because it's good for you and your family? If yes, Mazel tov. It became, where are you going? How much are they paying you? What do you need and want? First of all, it's a too late negotiation. <laughs> Correct. But it's about the wrong things, right? Like there's always somebody that's going to pay more. And oftentimes as an employee, especially in the industrial model, you unlock your true, an exponential growth in your income by leaving. Correct. What is measuring turnover obscuring? Okay, so if you are running the Model T assembly line in year three of its 10-year run, turnover is a bad thing because the cost of training someone, indoctrinating them into your culture, getting them up to speed is significant. It's high. And so you want to create an environment where you are rewarding people enough to have an incentive to stay because your cost to them leaving is too high. That's the industrial mindset. But now, first of all, if you've got any digital systems whatsoever, an enormous amount of the learning is already in, on your hard drive. Someone can catch up if they join your team with Slack in three days, not in nine months, because they can see all the threads and everything that came before. So the cost of turnover has gone down. But the other thing that's even more important is this. If we're on a bus and the bus is going to Cleveland and you're constantly whining because you really want to go to Tulsa, 
nothing good is going to come of this because we need to go to Cleveland. We want everyone in the bus to want to go to Cleveland. I started one of the first internet companies and I was really proud for a long time that we had essentially zero voluntary turnover. Sometimes I had to ask someone to leave, but in general, no one ever quit. That probably cost me $5 billion and the people on the team a lot of money as well. Plus the joy of going where we were going as fast as we could go. Because we were focused on stability and replacements and everything else. Instead, if we say, let's get real or let's not play, this is what things are like around here. This is what we measure, why we think this is good, what a good day looks like. And if this is not for you, as I've accurately described it, I will write you the letter of recommendation. And I'm encouraging everyone in the company to have an up-to-date LinkedIn page. Because if you can find someone who's going where we're going better than we're going there, you should go join them. And so turnover isn't the problem. Turnover is a symptom that you've been clear about where you're going and someone is honest enough with themselves that they can say, my skills are better put somewhere else. The alternative is you're left with a whole company filled with people who have no better option. And that doesn't seem exciting to me. Company full of people with no better option. That is about the worst thing you could <laughs> you could ask for, especially if you still have important work left to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something else that came up in the book was you talked about project work. And as I was thinking back on my own career and when I talk about my career to people, especially when maybe going through a recruiting process or an interview, and I think about the highlights of my career, it is always those times when even the job itself was a project, a mm -hmm. turnaround, a post M&A integration, these things that have beginning, middles and ends. And then when it becomes steady state, like how do we grow by 12% next year while eliminating 12% of op like that's not really that interesting. <laughs> Unless, you know, some people can view that as the project. Optimization is a project, I suppose. But it's really interesting that the underlying theme of a lot of this is that one, you have to know yourself and what you want. You have to know what brings out your best or sort of magnifies you, resonates for you. And then you have to be willing to require that. Before you can even find the place where you can get that, that's a lot of work for an individual to do. You know, you and I are of a certain age and a certain generation. And I think I didn't know all the things you and I are talking about right now, 25, 30 years ago. How can we better support the workforce to think of themselves as people that have optionality, that aren't trapped? that are supported in the things that you clearly are saying throughout the book and throughout the theme of your recent works. How do we do that for young people? How do we give young people that confidence and safety earlier on before they have learned the wisdom? Let's start at the end and go backwards. Industrial schooling was invented by Andrew Carnegie and others to make it so that you would be a compliant factory worker. We have the memos. We know exactly who did it and why they did it. That Asking the question, will this be on the test? Figuring out just the minimum to get through. And then squirreling away whenever you're off duty to actually have fun. That's what we built schooling to teach you to do. And left to their own devices, kids, until we force them to stop being kids, do nothing but projects. Kids don't wake up on Wednesday and say, another Wednesday, two more days till hump day. 
there's a project, whether it's building a popsicle stick bridge or going on a jaunt with your friend to buy a can of beans, whatever it is, there's nothing but project. That's what we focus on. And then we get to work and we're told by the industrialists, you will have the same job for the next 40 years. And if you behave, I will not fire you. Your job is to bring your body, but not your heart to work and just do this over and over again. From a very early age, I realized this would destroy me. I you know, had undiagnosed ADHD when no one was talking about it, but I knew that one summer that I was helping program the IBM 360 computer in Cincinnati, that even two hours of that was going to destroy me. So what makes something a project? A project, if you come at it with MBA thinking, is it's post-MNA, we're going to rebuild this thing. But actually, a project could be, I have a customer at table three, and they're here to celebrate grandma's birthday. And she just got out of intensive care. That's my project. And in the next hour and a half, I'm going to do something that's going to change that family's life. That's a project. Now, the waiter at table seven is just getting through the shift. Well, who's going to have a better day? Who's going to, if it matters, get better tips? And who's going to make a bigger impact on folks? So the mind shift isn't about being a certain age. The mind shift which happened for me when I was 18, was, oh, people are going to pay me for the rest of my life to do projects. I get to pick which projects. I might have to trade money, and I've traded a lot of money to pick projects that I wanted to work on. But seeing it as a project is a freedom that's up to us. And then choosing projects, for anyone who has the technology to listen to this podcast, is also up to us. So instead of blaming the industrial megalith for, I have no choices. Well, actually you do. There's someone sitting one desk away from you who's treating today like a project and you're not. How do you think the conversations you're starting and spurring with the book, what can you say about that in the context of what we're seeing with the current labor movements? And again, I'm not asking from a political perspective. It's more about, I almost think of it as an awakening and a realization of something else actually you said about if the bus isn't going where you want to go, you could today you could just get off the bus. As someone who recently got off a bus, I found that very resonant and powerful. It seems like more and more people are realizing that they don't have to be on the bus and there might actually be other buses. Is that the lesson for labor? Well, AI is going to blow us up so much that we you won't even recognize. But Organized labor is a logical and essential complement to industrial power. If you don't have organized labor as a counterbalance to industrial power, then industrial power's ratchet will continue to turn until either the government says you can't pay people less or people are getting paid a penny because they have all of the resources to yeah. plug people into their machine as a cog. One of the things that we're seeing in labor in this country right now is the result of a couple of years of inflation. And so if your wages were stuck and prices went up, you were feeling it. But part of what we're seeing is that there are still some big companies left. There are still com some companies left that can be unionized. Workers are starting to understand, particularly using the tools of communication that are available to them, that they all come out ahead when they do that. What is going to happen 
even faster because of AI is we're going to atomize the nature of work. That more and more people aren't going to have what we used to think of as a job. They're going to have projects and tasks from many sources. They are also going to own the means of production because you have a laptop, you have access to a billion dollar thing called ChatGPT. If you have a laptop, you have access to a trillion dollar communications network. The same one the CEO of a giant company has. So once people grow up understanding they have access to the means of production, the atomization will continue. Again, back to the music business, you don't need to know the head of A&R at Atlantic Records to make a record anymore. So the idea of musicians unionizing is impossible to imagine because who are they going to unionize against? There's no boss. And that's going to happen everywhere we look. Yeah. That's really fascinating because the other thing that, that gives me some excitement around what you just said is that favors the young and it favors the emerging workforce because oftentimes the people who have the most facility with the new means of production are the next generation. How many people our age or older or even younger just don't know how to, wouldn't be, even begin to prompt GPT. They, they wouldn't well, know Well, that's because they do. don't want to, not because they can't. Yeah. Right? That it was easy to say 100 years ago, old people can't lift heavy objects. But what is true now is that old people are afraid, even though the cost of being wrong is absolutely zero. And so I might not look forward to the half hour I spend every day with ChatGPT, but I do it because my brain is still plastic enough that I can figure it out. Yeah. I know our time together is winding down. I wanted to ask you one last quick question. If you were told you could no longer be the voice of your audiobooks, who would you want to read them? Oh, I would definitely nominate you. I could listen to your voice all day long. Um, <laughs> I've actually thought about this because I used to be able to do a five-hour audiobook in six hours, and now it mm -hmm. takes me a month because my whole body just doesn't respond like it used to. Yeah. I got to say the best audiobook I've ever listened to, she couldn't do it, she wouldn't do it, but Patti Smith just makes me melt listening to her voice. If you get a chance to listen to Just Kids, I strongly recommend it. But I got to say, Neil Gaiman. Wow. Okay. So after Patti Smith and Neil Gaiman, you'll call me. Yes, you're third. That's fair. Seth, thank you. Thank you so much for the book, all the books, the thought leadership, all the influence you've given multiple industries, but especially mine over the years. And thank you for your time today. Well, it's a treat. Thank you for doing this. I know it's not easy. Showing up and showing up and showing up. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Seth Godin. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Qburn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.